rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Well, welcome, friends, to another episode of Rumors of Grace. I'm sitting here on this beautiful sunny day, looking out the window, talking to a new friend of mine, and I can't wait for you guys to hear this uh, interview because I'm excited about the content. Sitting with me today is uh, Thomas J. Ord. He's a theologian, a philosopher, and scholar of multidisciplinary studies. He's a best-selling and award-winning author, having written many, many books. Uh, I discovered that after <laughs> doing my own research. I thought he had, you know, two or three, but there's several. He's written or edited more than 25, actually. He directs a doctoral program at Northwind Theological Seminary and the Center for Open and Relational Theology. He's a 12-time faculty award-winning professor. Uh, Thomas Ward teaches at institutions around the globe, and he's known for his contribution to research on love, open and relational theology, science and religion, and the implications of freedom and relationships for transformation. Wow, that's a mouthful. Uh, Tom, Tom, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks so much for the invitation, Bob. I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, yeah, I've been looking forward to this for a while. Um, I've heard about your book. The book is called, that we're going to talk about today, actually, it's kind of two books, but kind of one, is God Can't, How to Believe in God and Love After Tragedy, Abuse, and Evil. And your latest book, which is kind of a follow-up, which is Q&A, A God Can't Q&A, so questions and answers to the book. Um, So before we jump into the content of the book and what I want to talk about today, I like to always ask my guests, you know, who are they? Where do they come from? How did they grow up? Can you just give us maybe a, not a hundred foot view, maybe a 50 foot view. Um, (laughs) Who is Thomas J. Ord and where did he come from? How did he grow up? How did he arrive at where he is today doing what you do? Well, I think probably the most important thing to say about myself, and it might be, I don't know, maybe too intense, but uh, I like to get right to the point. What I care most about in my life, who I am, you might say, is someone who wants to live a life of love. Mm. Love matters more than anything to me. In terms of my background, I'm a Christian. I grew up in a fairly traditional Christian setting, evangelical background. I was one of those uh, people who took the faith very seriously, became an evangelist, got into lots of healing stuff. And uh, eventually, by the time I was a senior in college, I came to the place where I didn't believe in God anymore. I had encountered some writings from atheists, agnostics, and folks from other religious traditions. And the reasons I had for believing that there was a God, those reasons didn't make much sense to me anymore. So I, I remember coming to pick up my girlfriend, my, I, guess, I guess she was my fiance at that point. She's now my wife. Her getting in the car and me looking at her and saying, you know what, I just can't believe in God anymore. Mm. Um, I kept at the quest uh, for, of, for God. And two things kind of brought me back to where I am today, which is believing that it is plausible that there is a God. 
Those two things were my deep intuitions about love and there being um, my seeing a need, at least, for there being a source of love and uh, my search for meaning and my belief that there must be some kind of uh, ground for ultimate meaning, a ground that many people call God. Um, I was a, in pastoral ministry for 10 years. I have a couple master's degree and a PhD in philosophy of religion and theology, taught in lots of institutions, undergraduate, graduate, doctoral, and um, have three kids, a wife, a granddaughter. <laughs> Maybe that's more than you want to know. No, that's great. With that background, um, I'm I'm assuming that of your many books that you've written, there's this idea, and I think it's that's a good segue, um, of the whole idea of uncontrolling love mm. and how you have applied that to your understanding of faith and of God. It's a very different, um, it's a very different view than many in the church because God is always thought of as this you know, the word that we use in theology is sovereign, Mm. um, all powerful. Mm. And while that's comforting on one side, it's sometimes there's a, um, I think there's a disconnect in our brains as humans. When we say there's this loving, sovereign, Mm. all powerful God who holds all things together and is in control of everything which I guess does create a comfort in us as human beings. Yeah. The other side, the disconnect is he doesn't always seem, appear, feel, look like that is the truth when we have things that we see that are very, that seem chaotic, they seem yeah. unloving, they seem painful, death of children, cancer, disasters, um, what we see around going us even right now, um, somehow, uh, for you, it seems like, and this is a segue to your book, which is called God can't. And this whole idea of an uncontrolling love of you, you're saying there's things that God simply can't do. And that's okay because that's the freedom of uncontrolling love is, am I, am I even getting close to what you're trying to say in your book? Yes, you are. Yeah. Um, it comes as a surprise to many people who read the Bible, and I'm a person who reads the Bible faithfully. It comes as a surprise when they discover that there are quite a few passages in Scripture that talk about things God can't do, not won't do, as if God could and decides not to, but simply can't. The writer of Hebrews says God can't tell a lie. James says God can't be tempted. The psalmist says God can't grow tired. Uh, the, um, well, I could go on and on. My favorite passage is uh, the one in Timothy, in which Timothy, or Paul is writing to Timothy. And Paul says, when we are faithless, God remains faithful because God cannot deny himself. And so whatever word we want to use for God's power, sovereign, omnipotent, almighty, whichever our preferences, I think we need to take into account the biblical claims that God can't do some things. It's also surprising to many to find out that the vast majority, almost every major Christian theologian in history has said that God 
can't do some things. Almost everyone, the only person I could think of as an exception is Rene Descartes, and he's a philosopher. All the rest said God can't do what is illogical. God can't make two plus two equal 387. God can't make a round square, these kinds of things. And then there were some theologians who said God can't, can't contradict God's own nature. And my proposal is in that tradition. Mm. Uh, here's a quote of yours, and, and you write about it in your book as well, uh, which I think I, I've been meditating on the last day or two, knowing that I was going to be interviewing you. And you say, God simply cannot override the freedom and agency of creatures in creation, can't withdraw it, can't fail to provide it. And so this uncontrolling love is the way that God acts moment by moment at every level of creation and has been doing so from the very beginning. That's a powerful statement. And, you know, for people like us who are brought up in, in, in an evangelical tradition and a more conservative faith, you know, hearing those words are simultaneously um, freeing and also bristling at the same time. <laughs> yeah. We're conditioned, nice. we're conditioned for this, but, but, God's, but God can do anything. He's all powerful. He's God. Yeah. That's the very definition of God. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's something that I want to unpack with you. And because you take it not just in relation with human beings, but you also talk about it in the context of science and nature and creation yes. that God does not override natural disasters. God does not intervene and change natural science. Yeah. He can't is, is what you say. You know, do you remember a, a movie that came out? I'm going to guess, oh, it's probably been 15 years ago called Bruce Almighty. Yes. It, it uh, you know, st stars, I think it was Jim Carrey in the first one. And um, he, it's interesting that this particular movie, all of a sudden Jim Carrey gets the, obtains the abilities of God. Uh, God is played actually by uh, Morgan Free Freeman, if I remember correctly. As Anyways, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but it's what makes the movie interesting to me is that it's it's a default for most people, not just evangelicals like you and me, or Christians, or even Muslims and Jews. It's a default for most people that when they think about God, the first thing they think of is sovereign power or a particular kind of power. And in this movie, um, you know, Jim Carrey has to come to grips with his ability to make people do things. The, uh, the writers of the script think God has controlling power. I don't think God has that. But even in this movie, the, uh, the writers have a scene in which they talk about free will. And Morgan Freeman does say something about, you know, not compromising human free will. And that's been a very common um, card to play in questions of evil, of suffering, unnecessary pain, you know. We'll say, well, people have to have free will, so God won't control them. He'll allow them to use their free will. This doesn't sound good to victims, of course, to survivors of torture, rape, abuse. To, to think that God could have stopped what happened to them, but allowed the perpetrator to do what they did. I mean, that doesn't sound particularly loving. But I want to say that this freedom that God provides not only complex creatures like you and me and 
maybe our dogs and dolphins, but also the agency and self-organization at the smallest levels of existence. God freely gives these things out of love, no matter the complexity of the creature, various degrees of agency, freedom, even indeterminacy at the quantum level. And because God's nature is this self-giving and others-empowering love, God simply can't control anyone or anything. Yeah. So let's jump into your book of God Can and God, God Can't Q&A. So what does an uncontrolling God do? Mm. What is God, if, 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 your, if your theory is correct, what does that look like in, the, in, in our daily lives? Yeah, I could start with kind of the usual things that Christians say, like God saves, God creates, God loves, God sanctifies. I can affirm all those things, except that I would just say God does this always in an uncontrolling way. Mm. But let me, let me try to answer the question in a little bit different way. If someone asked the question, what does Bob do? How would they come to an answer? Well, they might observe what Bob does as he walks around his life. You know, I don't know, gets up in the morning, makes breakfast, has a shower, starts work, whatever. They might describe Bob's actions by seeing him uh, visually. But we would also probably say that Bob has some decisions he makes internally, mentally, that not everyone can see. We might be able to see the effects of them. So to describe what Bob does, we'd have to have some sort of visual maybe uh, thing going on, and then we'd have to make some imaginative leaps, what philosophers call inferences, based upon those actions to what Bob's mind is up to. Now let's apply this to God. I don't think we can look outside and see God strolling down the street. If God is truly omnipresent, and truly has no localized body, what theologians called incorporeal, then we don't have the capacity to look out and observe God's walking you know, through the garden in the afternoon. So that's kind of off the table. <laughs> so now we have to ask the question, what about the mind of God? And here I really like this language, because this fits well with many of the biblical words like pneuma and ruach, this, this spirit, this wind, this in fact, one of the translations of both those words is mind. I think God always acts as a universal spirit without a localized body and influences everyone and everything in every moment. This is not a God watching us from the distance like Bette Midler's God. This is a God involved moment by moment in all things, in all ways, but never in a controlling fashion. Mm. Mm. So how is what you're saying different than the age-old argument of free will versus predestination? Are you not just taking the free will argument and just putting different words on it? There's a lot of similarities. I'm taking the free will argument and extending it even down to quarks except I don't think quarks actually have free will, but I think they have some sort of what philosophers call indeterminacy. So I think you and I have some free will. It's, it's limited, of course, but we have a measure of free will. 
And I've got no problems thinking my dog has free will. Uh, sometimes I discipline my dog <laughs> in light of his misuse of free will, uh, but it's probably much less free will than you and I have. Uh, worms, do they have free will? Eh, I don't know about that. Cells, well, cells at least have responsiveness. So I want to talk about some kind of uh, agency, responsiveness, self-organization at all levels of existence. And that's one way of taking the free will versus predestination debate and saying God's love provides freedom, agency, self-organization, indeterminacy to all creation, every universe that exists. Mm. And, and with that kind of line of thinking, what does it mean to say that God loves everyone and everything? Mm, yeah, great question. Love is such a multifaceted, multi-meaning, uh, sometimes confusing word. <laughs> uh, by love, I don't mean that God likes everything that we or other creatures do. I think God hates sin. God hates rape, torture, etc. When I say God loves everyone and everything, I mean God acts to promote the well-being, the flourishing, or to use more biblical language, God blesses creation. God provides abundant life. Um, that's what love looks like for God. I think God does this intentionally in response to creation. So it's a, it's a giving and receiving kind of love, but it acts for, God acts for the well-being of all. So it's more of uh, realizing that God is the source of existence and life, not the controller of the outgrowth of that life necessarily. Yeah, not even not that, but God can't be that, in my view, because of God's fundamental nature of uncontrolling love. So, so to put it in a nutshell, you believe that God is so much, well, the Bible says God is love, not just right. is loving, yeah. is love itself. By that very nature, love can't be controlling uh, in that sense. That's my claim. You know, um, I think there's some other passive scripture I can point to. You know, uh, the Apostle Paul in Corinthians, First uh, Corinthians 13 says, uh, love does not force its own way, which is another way of being uncontrolling. Um, so, yeah, I want to make that kind of claim. I do it for a variety of reasons, some of them biblical, some of them experiential. But one of the big ones is what we've already mentioned, and that is the problem of evil. If God has the capacity to stop the pointless pain, unnecessary suffering, and genuine evil, and God doesn't use that power to stop it, then I can't think God is consistently loving. Since there is evil, I think, God, and I do think God is loving, I don't think God has the power to prevent evil single-handedly. And if then your uh, interpretation and belief of God's character, how does that, I've had many discussions with, with people of faith and different faiths about this, is if, if God can't control things, then why do we pray for things to change and be controlled? Yeah, that's probably the most common question I received after writing the book, God Can't. <laughs> you know, I do a lot of speaking. Well, I did before the pandemic, but before the pandemic, I did a lot of speaking at universities, seminaries, 
uh, institutions, churches, etc. And many people would say, well, okay, if God can't control things, then why pray? And 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 by that, they I think they had in mind petitionary prayer. Right. You know, um, so why ask God to do things, we might say. Um, and my answer, if you don't mind me taking a little bit time with this since it's so important, I like good. to I like to point out four models of prayer. So one model says God predestined everything from the beginning of the world. We'll call it John Calvin's prayer model. In that particular view, it's really hard for me, at least, to get motivated to pray a petitionary prayer, because in that model, everything's already been decided, right? It's been predetermined. And so praying for my aunt, to get over cancer is not something that's going to change. My prayers aren't going to change what's already been decided. But most people I know don't really have that view of God. At least they don't have that view when they pray. Uh, so that's the first model I'll set aside. Other people have God as a, um, we'll call it the hands-off God, the God of deism, the God who watches us you know, eating popcorn, watching from a distance, saying, boy, look at those folks down there scrambling around the, the pandemic. It makes no sense to pray to this God either, because this God isn't going to get engaged. So petitionary prayer doesn't matter. I reject that model too. Most people I know accept the third model I want to present, and it's one I don't accept. It says this, God has the kind of power to single-handedly fix something, to step in, intervene, and bring about some result because of our prayers. But God may or may not do that. God apparently sometimes sits on the sidelines, arms folded, saying, you know, Bob, if you don't ask me, if you don't petition me, I'm not going to do anything. And that sounds really weird if God is a God of perfect love, especially when the situation is dire. You know, if, if you're asking God to give you a, a brand new, you know, Mercedes, well, we might understand why God's not answering that. But if you're asking God to intervene to stop some torture, then you're thinking, well, of course a loving God would want to do that. What's going on there? Is God saying, you know, Bob, I won't act until you pray 37 times. Or unless you get the whole prayer chain at church going, I'm not going to do anything. Wouldn't a God who is perfectly loving and who has the power to single-handedly fix things, wouldn't that God fix them even if we didn't pray? And if that's the case, then why get motivated to pray? <laughs> right? If God knows so much better than you and me what should be done, and God has the power to fix it single-handedly, then, well, I'll just speak for myself. It would be hard for me to get motivated to engage in petitionary prayer. So those are the three models I don't like. Let me tell you about the fourth model that I do like. <laughs> um, it says this, our prayers really make a difference to God. It really has an effect on who God is. I think God is relational. And that means God is affected by everything we do, including our prayers. It also says we live in an interrelated universe, such that my actions affect not only myself, but others in my environment, my society, my family, my friends, etc. 
So those two ideas that prayer affects God and my actions and prayer is an action can affect others in the world means that my prayer in one moment can actually open up new possibilities, new avenues for action, new opportunities for God as God responds moment by moment in the world. So my prayers make a real difference. They don't they don't make it the case that God can somehow now control others because I prayed, but it makes it the case that God has new data, new information points, new relational capacities because of my prayer in one moment. And therefore, God can act differently in love the next moment in response. So it almost sounds like you're talking about quantum entanglement here to some degree. That works very well with my theory. Yeah, I think it's not just at the quantum level, however, that it's entanglement throughout all of reality. Mm. Hmm. Interesting. Um, how does how does Jesus fit into a theology of uncontrolling love? Well, this is actually one of the, I deal with this question in the new book, and and um, this is actually a question I rarely get asked because most people see the connection pretty well. But what they don't see is that Jesus also acted in an uncontrolling way. Mm. And uh, I try to point this out, especially in relation to Jesus' miracles, that uh, Jesus does do miracles, and I consider them legitimate. But we've often thought that miracles involve God uh, controlling others or situations. You know, we use words like... uh, God supernaturally intervened to bring about some result. And I think we should affirm miracles, but always talk about creation playing some role in them, in the miracles coming to be. So that when you look at the life of Jesus, he's often saying things like, you know, your faith has made you well. Or um, I like that one story where the uh, friends bring their buddy on, uh, on a bed and they, uh, take out the top of the roof and they lower the their buddy down to Jesus and Jesus heals their buddy but interestingly Jesus looks up at the friends and says to the friends your faith has made him well so there's something about creation's response that i think is uh, essential in any miracle that's legitimate well I, that, that makes total sense. However, um, turning water to wine, healing Lazarus from the dead, these are all things that seem to contradict science and change the very molecular structure of things. Does that not fly in the face of this uh, God can't understanding? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, biblical scholars sometimes like to divide miracles into two kinds of categories. One they'll call agent or personal miracles. And so in that category, they'll put things like you know, healings, exorcisms, resurrections. And in the other ca- camp, they'll put, they'll call them natural miracles. Or, and those things will be like parting the Red Sea, turning water to wine, walking on water. And um, I think that's a legitimate way to think because um, I think we do really expect the, there at least to be the possibility that our bodies have the capacity to respond in ways that water doesn't have a capacity. You know, I mean, I think cells have some kind of agency, but I don't think water has free will. So 
you know, if we're going to talk about what's happening there at the, we'll call it inanimate creation, then I think we have to think uh, a little bit differently on the responsive capacities for creatures. So in that way, um, I sometimes will draw upon theories in chaos theory, uh, in physics, in like chaos theory, quantum mechanics, et cetera, to propose models on how divine influence can have chain reactions at the molecular level, at the quantum level of reality. Um, and I you do that in ways that are different than the way I would talk about, let's say, cells and muscles responding to God. So that's kind of a little preamble to your, your two examples. <laughs> um, I think with the Lazarus example, it's a really interesting one. There are so many strange things about that story. First strange thing. When they come and tell Jesus that Lazarus is dead, Jesus says, no, he's not dead. He's asleep. What do we do with that? Secondly, he comes to the tomb and Jesus says, would someone roll the stone away? If Jesus has got the power to single-handedly heal Lazarus, what's the deal with having someone roll the stone away? Like, <laughs> there's, He's asking for some cooperation from other people to make this thing happen. Which is incidentally interesting because in gospel, in uh, Matthew's gospel, when God resurrects Jesus, God doesn't roll the stone away. God sends an angel to roll that stone away, which is, anyway. Uh, third interesting thing about the Lazarus story. Jesus doesn't walk in the tomb and somehow just put his hands on Lazarus and, and you know, things happen. Jesus says, come forth. It's almost a call that needs a response. Right. So um, I think actually the Lazarus story supports my view more than people might think. Um, this, the water to wine one is tougher for me. I just like to admit when, <laughs> when I see things that are harder. I mean, it doesn't undermine my view, but I have to rely a lot on theories and physics to come to an account. But my general view that God is acting in relation to creation, including the molecules and, you know, subatomic uh, particles, et cetera, that can be affirmed without uh, me having a really clear notion of how water can turn to wine. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And then the walking on the water would be a similar type thing? Yeah, it would be similar. Okay. There is another way a person can go here, and this is the way most more progressive Christians go. They'll say, look, water to wine, did it really happen? Nah, I don't think so. This is a pedagogical moment. In other words, a teaching moment that uh, Jesus can make even the, uh, the mundane things better. Or this is oftentimes used uh, for like the five loaves and two fish and to, you know, feeding 5,000. Did it really happen? More progressive scholars would say no, but it tells us something important about Jesus being the source of goodness. Um, I can go that direction, but I prefer to try to have some sort of actual metaphysical uh, explanation without moving to the pedagogical one. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally understand. So um, what does it mean to you? And I, we touched on this earlier, and now I'm kind of coming on the backside of what we talked about. Okay. What does it mean then when we understand, we say, we believe, and even maybe govern our lives by this 
phrase of God loves everyone and everything. Um, and if that then determines how I respond to people and I engage and look at the world through the eyes of love and a divine creator that I claim to know and understand and believe in, that motivates me then to love someone as unconditionally as I humanly can. Mm-hmm. How does that change my view and understanding? Um, because part of that love and part of that understanding and that unconditional love that we seek to express towards people is based on this all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing um, God that can do anything. And so, mm-hmm. therefore, if that type of God that created the universe that can do anything that can save and heal and, 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 and change hearts, quote, um, how does an uncontrolling view of God and knowing that God can't, how does that affect me and the way that I love others and understanding how God loves, loves others? Yeah, boy, I could write books on this question. Um, <laughs> so let me narrow my response down to two main, uh, main aspects. First of all, what does it mean to love all creation? Well, if love seeks the well-being of others, in fact, all others, including myself, then it means that I have to look at myself, my friends, my family, my enemies, strangers, other creatures on this planet, even the planet itself, as having a value that I should support and affirm. That means I can't look at the people I think are really bad. I don't know. Let me just take a person from history, Adolf Hitler. I can't think it, look at Adolf Hitler and say, that guy is irredeemable. Nothing valuable about him. Just destroy him. Nothing there that's worth anything. Nope. Every last person from the worst criminal we know to the greatest saint has true value. And I am called to act for their well-being. I'm called to appreciate their value and also act to enhance it. That means the way I act toward other creatures, great and small. I'm a big outdoors person, so I think about this a lot when I'm hiking. So that's how I that's one of the aspects I would go down in answering your question. Mm-hmm. The second aspect I want to emphasize is that if God can't control and God wants to use Christian language, the kingdom of God to be established in our lives and in the world, if God wants love to win, we might say, God actually needs our cooperation. God needs what we have to offer. This idea of a needing God makes some people tremble. (laughs) I can just imagine some of your listeners saying, what God needs? (laughs) And I can imagine other listeners saying, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Like I've always kind of thought my decisions made a difference, that I had a role to play, that God called me to be a fellow worker, to use the language of the Apostle Paul. My theology puts real teeth into that idea that God calls upon us and all creation to join in the work to establish the kingdom of God for love to win in our lives and in the world. Mm. That's good. That's good. Um, Can you give us a brief history and what's your understanding? 
Is this view, your view, is this something that some people would hear this and go, oh, that's some kind of new theology that's often left field. But I, my gut tells me that this is probably a very old understanding, uh, early church, potentially, of, of God's nature, God's uncontrolling love, what God can and can't do. And in your book, you know, obviously, you touch on some of the theology, the origins of, of August St. Augustine and Calvin and Luther. Can you give us maybe, a, maybe just a short church history to understand how did we get to this point of believing that God was this all-powerful male being that controlled and could change and could bring down fire from heaven and storms. And if we pray enough, he will can change his mind about destruction and can, you know, alter physical bodies and healings and things like that. Can you give us a little bit of background of that? Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, let me begin by saying I want to avoid two extreme statements. One extreme statement says this, the theology I've provided has no other connections to any other theologian in history, and everything I say is totally brand new and original. <laughs> I want to avoid that. Sure. But I also want to avoid the other extreme, which says that, you know, everything I say, everyone else has always said, there's nothing new or original here. I think I really do have some original ideas, but they have deep connections to various aspects of the Christian tradition and scripture. So now for the history. Um, I think that if we read scripture, Old and New Testament, we don't have a systematic theology. We have a collection of inspired writings that present various views and images of God, some of which don't fit well together if we're really honest. You know, the God who says we're supposed to forgive our enemies in other places is said to smite them all, kill them all. Um, what some Christians and, and others have done is to say, oh, but in God's perspective, that makes a lot of sense. To me, I think the general and broad themes of Scripture point to a God of love, who forgives, who wants the well-being of everyone, friend and foe. But there are some passive Scripture that don't portray God that way. And I've come to the place in my life where I look at those passages and say, I just think the writers got it wrong. I think the majority of Scripture points to this vision of a loving God, but I admit there are some passages that suggest otherwise. Now, in the history of Christianity, as the church began to form, they have these Scriptures that they eventually come to canonize and make you know, various versions, maybe maybe some of your listeners don't know, there's a difference between the Protestant Bible, the Catholic Bible, and the Eastern Orthodox Bible. There's, there's different books. There's additional books in those. But eventually, there's this canon that emerges. And at the same time, there's a particular philosophical vision of the world that is really dominant. We now call it Neoplatonic philosophy. And this Neoplatonic vision was very influenced by Plato and Aristotle. And they, those particular philosophers understood God as perfect in the sense of never being affected by the world and having the kind of power that's very top-down, hierarchical. 
And Christians, including some of the greatest Christians in history, theologians, took that view, that philosophical view of the unmoved mover, the the monarch, the king who has all of this top-down kind of power, and they mushed it into their view of God. And I think we've had theologies that have primarily understood God in terms of sovereignty, not that, you know, Luther and Calvin and Aquinas and Augustine, they it's not that they didn't believe God was loving. Of course they did. But I think that they understood that love and tried to understand God in light of this bigger philosophical framework that, in my view, and not just my view, many people's view, seems at odds with a more broad biblical view of God. So we have this Neoplatonic philosophy, this general, again, it's very there's different views of God in Scripture, but I think the dominant ones are a God of love. And maybe one way to understand what I'm trying to do is to reassert the primacy of love and understand God's power and other attributes in light of the primacy of love. And for me, that points to a God whose love is inherently uncontrolled. Mm. Uh, Let me say one final thing. Um, If there was one theologian in history that I I lean on or find, maybe lean on too strong. Uh, I find lots of connections between my work. It's the theologian John Wesley. I think he has some really great insights to offer us. And specifically, is there anything that you would bring out that specifically about John Wesley? Well, he, like me, tried to take the idea of God's love and make it primary. In in his uh, commentary on 1 John, he says, uh, that love is God's darling attribute, the one by which we ought to understand all other, all of other God's attributes. Um, he also emphasized what he would call liberty, or what today we would call freedom and free will. He thought God's grace was extended to all creation. We now call this prevenient grace, and this grace provides the opportunity for our responses to God. God doesn't predestine you know, some people to heaven and other people to hell. Um, I could go on and on about John Wesley, but those are some of the the main things. Yeah, yeah, that's good. That's good. What does your background and study of your your work over the years and, and your study of of love and relationships and all the books that you've written? Um, how does do? Would you say that those all of that work and study and life and your journey has led you to kind of come to this idea of an uncontrolling love, this uncontrolling God that actually is fully love. And because he is fully love, he can't be controlling. Um, Is that, did it come out of that understanding and your study, your research of relational love and theology and philosophy? That played an important role, but there were a couple other aspects that were also very important. I'm heavily involved in the science religion dialogue. And so I read a lot in the natural and social sciences. I think good theology needs to stay engaged with the sciences if it's going to make good sense of the world we live in and uh, has implications for how we understand God. But there's another aspect that I think is especially important, and that is actually just listening to people's stories, Mm. looking at life and the way it works. You know, Um, I get letters so often from people who've read God Can't. In fact, 
if you don't mind, let me read one of them yeah. because it illustrates nicely. Um, I get letters from people who are enduring all kinds of pain and suffering. Um, and they find this idea that God can't prevent their evil or couldn't have prevented their evil so helpful because it means that God isn't punishing them or abandoning them. And I could read dozens and dozens, but let me pick just one. And I'm picking it because it illustrates nicely the idea that God can't rather than God won't. Like I suspect that some of your listeners are going to say, okay, I can understand how God wouldn't always prevent evil, but I really want to believe that God could if God really wanted to. And this can't idea is going just a little too far for me. It makes me a little uncomfortable. Let me read this letter to illustrate why I'm willing to say God can't single-handedly prevent evil. So here goes. So I'll tell you a little bit about my story. I'm a survivor of sexual abuse a lot and for a long time by my brother. In the midst of the worst years of my life, I had a very vivid dream of God walking over to my bed as I was being raped. God simply reached out and held my hand and cried. For a few short days, I was elated. God hadn't left me after all. Then came the anger. Anger that God was there, and instead of stopping it, he simply held my hand and watched. For a long time, for years, I was angry about that. I prayed for a breakthrough, but I never got it, so I buried it. Now, paging and praying and reading and contemplating your book. I can see more clearly what may have been happening. God could not stop my brother. God gave free will. How could God have stopped him? The reality is that God couldn't, not that he didn't. And for me, this is a complete game changer. So to answer your question, it's not just studying philosophy and theology, not just drawing from the sciences, but it's also looking carefully at our day-to-day -day lived experiences, the good and the bad, that lead me to this uncontrolling love kind of perspective. Wow. Thank you for sharing that, Tom. That's, it's heavy, but it's also uh, a beautiful illustration of, of what we've been talking about and pulling it all together in some sort of dare I say, logical application, because mm. um, it does seem illogical when you first hear it, but the more that you think about it and the way you've explained it, and especially in that, in that testimonial, um, yeah, of course it makes sense. Of course, of course a perfect loving God um, can't control and over, you know, uh, change people's free will and make things happen that contradict necessarily science and other things but understanding the love as the source of all things and all things mm -hmm. good and all things alive mm -hmm. allows us to see deeper meanings and allows us to see that harmony between science um, and metaphysical and and dare we say 
things that appear miraculous, but yet maybe are just so full of love and depth that we don't understand them. Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. That's good. Um, how can people get in touch with you if they want to read more, if they want to see, get more books or read your blogs? What, what's the website can they go to? I have a website uh, that's my full name, Thomas J. Ord, and my middle name is J-A-Y-J, and my last name is O-O-R-D. That's a good place to go. I'm also, as you mentioned in your opening, the director for the Center for Open and Relational Theology. And if people are interested in what that might look like, uh, you can just Google that name, Center for Open and Relational Theology, and you can find that. When you're on my website, if you're you know, sign up for my newsletter if you want to know more information or keep abreast on what's going on. Those are all good ways to uh, find out uh, find out what I'm doing and some of the ideas I'm hoping can help others. Awesome. Well, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for your um, your openness, and I want to thank you for your brave your bravery because I'm sure that uh, writing some of the things you write, sharing some of the things you share doesn't always make you the most popular guy. Um, but uh, I think it's a, it's a message and a perspective that's highly needed. So, so thank you for that. Yeah, that means a lot for you to say that, Bob. Thanks. And uh, what's next? What's, what's, what are you writing lately? What's your, your next book going to be about? Well, it's going to be more on love. Uh, my, my wife likes to kid me that um, you know the vast majority of my books have the word love either in the title or the subtitle. And so another book will come out and she'll say, another book on love? <laughs> but uh, I want to write more, uh, have in mind uh, both an academic and a more public book related to the meaning of love. That's awesome. Well, we'll look forward to that. Thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, I hope people will reach out and ask questions because I'm sure this conversation has left many. But uh, just go to go to thomasjord.com and there's lots of resources there. I've spent some time on it myself. So thank you, Tom. Yeah, thank you, Bob. I've enjoyed this conversation. Okay, we'll talk to you soon. <laughs>